0: Hola. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to Policy Voices by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Each week from Brussels, we bring you powerful conversations with Policy Voices from around the world. Policy Voices talking policy choices.
2: We will be 70,000 people going to Dubai this year. So there is a real question. What is it that we're doing around these COPs? Are we just creating lots of noise and having lots of events and enabling lobbying, or are we really supposed to focus? Success would be to bring in something that we didn't expect. And that would be, hopefully, some kind of pledge around fossil fuel phase down, and also fossil fuel subsidies elimination.
0: It's such an unbelievable path dependency in the logic of that question. There's only one way in which we can grow economies, you know, because Europe did it this way, that we should be allowing for other other um, countries' emerging economies to also follow the path that was taken in the past. Um, I, I think that that, that that smells to me somewhat of, of neocolonialism. <laughs>
1: That was Sandrine dixon de President of the Club of Rome, and Luke O'Callaghan-White, Programme Manager for Climate, Energy and Sustainability at Friends of Europe. I'm Caterina Villanova, host of Policy Voices. With only two days to go before 70,000 people descend to Dubai for the 28th meeting of COP, the stakes have never been higher, but the expectations never lower. Sandrine and Luke framed for us what needs to be achieved for the conference to be deemed a success, and this goes well beyond an exercise of box-ticking the bare minimum. Fossil fuel phase-out is what is needed, but can it be achieved in a COP held in a state? What legitimacy does Dubai hold to be the host and president of COP? Stay on that side to hear what Sandrine and Luke had to say on what is one of the most controversial COP in almost three decades. Hi, both of you. Thank you very much for joining Policy Voices. Sandrine, look, uh, welcome. How are you? Very good, apart from the rainy weather.
0: Yes, rain aside, good to be here.
1: Well, <laughs> great. Uh, during the Brussels launch of the World Energy, Outlook Fatih Birol, the Executive Director of the International Energy Agency, laid out his five criteria for a successful COP in Dubai, The first two criteria were rather straightforward. Uh, He said that the capacity of renewables must triple by 2030 and that global energy efficiency must double as well globally by 2030. Sandrine, do you believe that both of these goals are within reach?
2: Well, first of all, I believe they're fundamental. Um, In the past, myself and Johan Rockström scientists obviously from uh, PIC have called for tripling of renewables investments annually so I mean I think we definitely need to reach a tripling by 2030 and also the energy efficiency goals. Are they within reach? Um, I do believe that unfortunately probably a year ago my answer to you would have been yes I think where I'm feeling incredibly frustrated is to see that most of the oil and gas companies that were actually investing in renewables are now continuing to pour most of their investments back into oil and gas and an extractive economy. So I'm a little bit on the fence, I must say, because what I'm seeing is not positive, even though we have seen overall an increase, continuous increase, in particular in renewables, not as fast in energy efficiency, and we definitely need to increase that as well. But recently, due to the Ukrainian invasion, and then maybe also now looking at what's happening as a hotspot, obviously in the Middle East, Uh, I do wonder how fast those um, were going to reach, actually, that that goal. Mm
1: -hmm. Of course, later in this episode, we will tackle inevitable uh, oil and gas companies. But before that, Luke, uh, do you share Sandrine's uh, scepticism, if I can put it this way?
0: Broadly, yes. I think, importantly, it is technically within reach. There's no doubt about that. The question is around the political will. And I think the last 12 months have been somewhat disheartening. Um, and I think that there's a way in which we can learn how to reach these goals in a slightly different way. I think taking the energy efficiency question as one, perhaps we could try to focus a little more on explaining what these co-benefits of energy efficiency are. It isn't just simply a boring question about revising Europe's building stocks, but it's about better health care, better use of, of money, better savings for citizens across the, the EU for, by taking these measures, which we absolutely need to do. There's no doubt about that. Um, but also, I think that it's a question about having a joined up approach to questions that might seem as though they only relate to renewable capacity. This is a question of organising supply chains, ensuring that the planning processes are in place to allow for the expeditious um, uh, increase in renewable capacity that we need, that we've committed to, and that we're not on track to delivering right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that we're, we're not um, within, that these goals are not within reach. They can be, they should be. It requires the political bravery that we've seen before. Uh, We've seen, for example, as Sandrine mentioned, in the response to the invasion of Ukraine, the Repower EU agenda is a bold, ambitious, and and, and, and an important step forward for European energy policy. It shows what what policymakers can do and what can be done in a quick time together when there's a clear goal and when there's a, a crisis that needs to be overcome. It would be really important, I think, that that same type of mentality is applied to an existential crisis like climate change and in very tangible ways and so I think it, it's, it's it's within reach but politically I'm concerned.
1: On the side of governments Fatibi Hall said that they should start putting into place measures for an orderly decline of fossil fuels that was his, um, his exact phrasing. Um, is this still possible to orderly decline fossil fuels Sandrine?
2: I I think that, um, again, we're we're talking about geopolitics. And we're also, by the way, talking about one of those difficult conversations that we have not had, and that is directly with national oil companies. Um, We can criticize the private sector and the windfall profits that we've seen in the private sector as of late, in particular since the Ukrainian invasion. But we have to realize that it probably is easier to push the private sector through regulation, then it will be to get the national oil companies, and in particular, those nations where their accounting, their budgets are inextricably linked to their oil and gas throughput. And so that orderly transition needs to be both around how do we work with private sector companies, how do we work with the big oil multinationals and convince them through regulation to stop and to pull out of fossil energy? But then how do we have those difficult conversations with countries, many of which are in the global South and in the Middle East, that are fully dependent on the extraction of oil and gas? And what does that look like? And then how do we ensure that we put in place the just transition mechanisms, the enabling mechanisms so that people don't feel the cost of pulling out? And and this is where we absolutely need to think through consumption patterns, where we need to understand our dependencies from an economic perspective, where we can continue to use some of the oil gas for the most important sectors. As we transition, in particular, the hard to abate sectors, the sectors that are most dependent on oil and gas, and really think through then where energy efficiency measures need to be stepped up, where we need to have more systemic thinking around how we join up mobility, the built environment within city environments, et cetera. It can be done, but there are some very difficult conversations that need to be had.
1: And look uh, for you, what would an orderly decline of fossil fuels look like?
0: Well, I, I don't want to just be complimenting Sandrine because I, I I agree with so much of what what you've just said. Um, I, I think I, I, I take slight issue with the with the phrasing of orderly transition. I think that what we're moving towards is going to be messy. There are going to be complications. There are going to be unintended consequences and. and geopolitical, economic, and 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 energy system developments that we are not anticipating right now. I think that needs to be factored into the transition as a whole. Um, I, I firmly agree that a systemic thinking about this question rather than thinking in silos is crucial in a way that hasn't really been before in terms of, of global energy policy. Um, there is a real question about just transition, especially for those uh, countries and, and, and the public companies that you've outlined Sundrine. And I think that we 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 talk about lots of regulations, and there's being too much red tape, and the need for innovation, and a kind of competitive economy during the transition away. I think we can't get around um, the fundamental point that um, incentives will move action for private sector companies, and regulations will be essential if we are to have the phase out of fossil fuel. activity in, 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 in the coming decade. I think it's really important. We, we we talk a lot about ambition. We talk a lot about new pledges and new promises. And yes, the, the, the methane pledge is something that will probably be agreed at, at this coming COP. We saw that there's a there's a strong consensus at COP26 in Glasgow. But we're now moving to the second half of this decade. This is the half of the decade where we need to implement uh, rather than just simply setting new targets.
2: So right you are, Luke, to think through orderly as a word, because to be frank, Climate change and the poly is not orderly either. And actually we need to think through chaos. Um, there will be chaos with increasing climate change. There will be chaos if we have more and more pandemics. Greenhouse gases will influence our world in such a way where we will not be able necessarily to prepare for further risks, further stresses, further shocks. So, so absolutely correct in saying that to, to even think that we will be 100% orderly when we've actually been so dependent on fossil energy for so long is close to impossible. But then we have to remember that we're not facing an orderly world anymore. And so let's think through that word in and of itself. It's constraining um, and we need to think beyond it and be much more strategic.
1: Another word that I would like to press both of you on is the word just that both of you mentioned. We, there's been recently the talks of just transition. Um, I would uh, question how can it be just to begin with if the perpetrators, the main perpetrators of climate change are not the ones who end up uh, suffering the, the catastrophic consequences of climate change. So how can we make sure that there is a just transition, not just in between countries, but also within countries? Uh, Look.
0: I think it's it's one of the key questions that underpins international climate diplomacy. Um, I think there's also no easy answer to that question. Um, I think it starts maybe thinking about um, um, the way that we understand success. And I've heard from a number of, of, I'm going to pick on them again, oil and gas companies who have uh, we've been in touch with, and they've highlighted that it's essential for emerging economies with a booming population, in particular in Sub-Saharan Africa, that they have the access to the same type of, of fossil fuels to allow for the economic growth and the growth of their economy. And there's a a there's a, 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 such an unbelievable path dependency in the logic of that question that it is there's only one way in which we can grow economies, or that we're you know, because Europe did it this way, that we should be allowing for other other um, countries, emerging economies to also follow the path that was taken in the past. Um, I, I think that, that 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 smells to me somewhat of of neocolonialism in the first place. But secondly, it is, um, I don't want to be too stringent here, but I think it's a myopic way of seeing how humans can thrive, societies can grow, economies can be competitive. So, I think that the question about justice in particular with respect to the transition requires that we think in a more holistic sense about what success means how can we get people to 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 have opportunities to thrive and to do well wherever they may live and whatever forms of climate adaptation they may need to to strengthen and develop the the second thing is and i i think we're i'm speaking with i think we're all speaking here in brussels today that we sometimes think about the Europeans' climate ambitions, the, the 2030 targets, the 2050 targets, they're important, but they're also important because of the historical responsibility that this continent shares towards pioneering ways in which we can develop frameworks, new ways of thinking that will allow for a more expedited decarbonization and removal of greenhouse gases more broadly across, across the, 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 the planet. I think the third um, point I'd make on, on just transition Um, is that a lot of it does come down to, and we'll we'll, I'm sure move on to this question uh, in advance of COP28, the question of financing and funding and of support. Um, Might talk a lot about loss and damage, which I think is is really important. I think that might be one of the few bright spots coming out of this um, this coming COP. But I also think that one of the um, areas that doesn't get a lot of attention or as much as it deserves is financing for adaptation. Uh, And this is particularly important uh, in, in, in those countries which are least responsible for the climate crisis that we have, so we cannot lose sight of the importance, yes, of, of financing measures and of, of, of new funds such as loss and damage. We also need to be thinking about adaptation. Uh, so I think those three um, points I think filter into the, the just transition question, but I think that it's a, it's at the at the core of international climate diplomacy, and I think that that it's um, not nowhere near being a comprehensive answer whatsoever. But I, I'd leave it at that for now.
1: We'll get to the issue of financing in just a minute but before that you raised a a very interesting point in the beginning of your answer and uh, I would ask Sandrine about uh, whether it's just that the West um, is now demanding countries that are just starting their their development process to not rely on uh, fossil fuels that we have relied on for, for such a long time.
2: So it's interesting. The the interpretation of just is that actually, the rest of the world should continue to make the mistakes that the West has. And I would like to flip that and say that actually, we've made huge mistakes. Um, And yes, um, the West has developed on the back of going far beyond the finite boundaries of the planet. And now we've surpassed six out of those nine boundaries. And now actually we're seeing that the impacts of our folly has predominantly been in not our countries, although we're starting to see the impacts as well, but predominantly in the global South. And so I want to flip that and demonstrate that first of all, it may seem that the West has been able to so-called develop. But actually, what we're seeing now is that the well-being index has dramatically decreased in the West. Through our new research through Earth for All, uh, Survival Guide for Humanity and the modeling that we've done, we've seen that social tension has increased, that poverty has actually increased, inequalities have increased, and as I said, well-being has decreased dramatically not to mention mental illness, suicide rates, um, et cetera. So are we giving a gift of development by continuing to push the development based on certain extractive economy that actually places no value on people, planet, and prosperity? I don't think so. Is it our responsibility to ensure that collectively, the global South has a chance to develop economically in a way that brings more people out of inequality, out of poverty, absolutely. That is real justice. And that comes back to some of the mentioning that Luke made around neocolonialism and our colonial past. That's also why Europe has to be a leader in this area. We owe it to our colonial past to make up for that colonial past, and to work with Africa, Latin America, to create some kind of collective well-being. And yes, we will, in the West, have to reduce our consumption patterns immediately to reduce our impact, while we enable the global South to develop differently, but to be able, probably, to have more of an impact than we ourselves do currently today. And that comes from a variety of different mechanisms, which we speak about in our book and that our modeling demonstrates. And let me just quickly come to a few of those. First is, we will never solve the climate crisis without dealing with inequality and poverty. And the best way to do that is to start to look at our financial frameworks. So Luke mentioned funding, but it needs to go beyond funding. Our financial architecture is broken. Our over-financialized economy is only focusing on profit and shareholder value. And in addition to that, we've enabled debt and trade deficits to go through the roof. We need to look at debt cancellation. We need to look at special drawing rights. We need to look at a new financial architecture that enables the Global South to have the fiscal space to be able to even invest in decarbonization and to create the economy that they want. Because for the moment, they're suffocating. They're completely underwater. And I don't mean that as as a joke, because actually, literally and figuratively, they are underwater or burning. So I, I think that we need to rethink completely our notion of collective responsibility and also our notion of... What is now the legitimate role of the West and what is real economic development within a 21st century paradigm where we need to ensure that we foster and service people's needs within finite boundaries?
1: Earlier this month, countries in uh, Abu Dhabi drew up a blueprint for a new loss and damage fund that will at first be administered by the World Bank. Uh, However, this blueprint must still be formally adopted at COP21-28. I'm wondering if you would frame this um, this disagreement. in the neo-colonialism, neocolonialist lens that you were just describing? Do you see this as, as good news, as a, a way of perhaps solving the problems of financing that you just described to us? Did you receive this as good news?
2: So it, it is good news, but it's, it's absolutely necessary rather than good news. It's an essential requirement for us to move forward, to both look at adaptation and to look at the deep loss and damage that most of the most vulnerable countries are going through. I I also would like to take this moment to honor the man who brought loss and damage on the table, Salim Haq, who I worked with for three years as co-chairs of our task force, actually, on resilient food systems, and who has recently passed. Because I fundamentally believe that his life's work has led to this moment. And maybe through that pain of losing someone who's been such a champion, we may see people step up to the plate. And I do actually think that might be the case. And we saw something similar, by the way, in Paris, post the terrorist attacks. Let us not underestimate the importance of people coming together during the Paris Agreement to demonstrate that they could actually come together and come to very ambitious agreements after terrorist attacks that happened in Paris. And in this particular case, I think everyone has come forward and said that Salim, that the loss of Salim has been very deeply felt, but his life's work must be honored this year at COP in terms of a deal around loss and damage. And we will all continue to fight in his honor for that deal. And I'm hopeful that actually in comparison to, for example, fossil fuel
1: phase out, we can get a deal on loss and damage. Uh, Luke, are you also as optimistic given that this agreement came less than a month before countries get together in Dubai?
0: well it's absolutely as sandrina said this is this is essential we're talking about bare necessities i think it's a testament to the diplomatic success of this initiative that if you look back even a couple of years ago the opposition from the european union the united states uh, um the idea that we could get to a point in which which it's not perfect at all i'm 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 sure that would be a, a kind of recognition that it's not um, um the final chapter of this important um important uh, uh, matter but I think it's a testament to the the skill the success and the there's hope in the capacity of of people being able to turn a tide on on a fundamental but up until very recently quite contentious issue. Um, I think the second thing uh, uh, the, the success of, of funds and other facilities depends on how um, those actors who need them can draw down on them. So I think that we've seen this with other facilities, not with the loss and damage fund, but with climate finance facilities, there are challenges in drawing down on some of these uh, available uh, money. So ensuring that can be easily accessed, that there's a transparency in accessing these funds is, is going to be important too. Um, but no, I'm, I'm hopeful on this front. And I think that this is a moment to, if, if the expectations are all very muted, this is an opportunity to be slightly louder about a case for hope.
1: Turning perhaps the conversation around uh, the question of hope, let's now turn the focus of this discussion on the location of this year's COP. A recent U- U- UN report found that Petro states such as Saudi Arabia, the US and the United Arab Emirates, where COP28 will be held, are planning expansions uh, that would blow the planet's carbon budget twice over. Sandrine, uh, what legi- legitimacy does Dubai have to host COP28? <sighs>
2: It's it's a very, very hard question. And um, as you know, I'm the author of the COP reform letter alongside other esteemed leaders such as Johan Ruckström, Laurence Tubiana, Mary Robinson, Ban Ki-moon, etc. And um, what, what we really felt in terms of the COP reform is that several things needed to happen. First of all, that the ambitious negotiations need to be hosted by countries who truly believe in ambition, that we can no longer allow for the, the, the implementation of the Paris Agreement to be watered down and to not go at the pace and scale necessary to reach the objectives. So we were all very worried, obviously, when the UAE took over the presidency. Um, Sharm el-Sheikh was not a brilliant show of, of leadership or ambition. Uh, now, on the other hand, I do believe that it's important to give different countries a chance to host the COP. But there are a variety of issues with that. One is what their real interests are, and can they truly host a COP and be a facilitator of ambition? Or will they enable, as we've seen now, unfortunately, in the case of the UAE, for example, the criticism that's coming in now in regard to some of the advisors like McKinsey, who are actually pushing for fossil fuel interests, who have been allowed to be advisors directly to the presidency. Um, There are some rumors as well that uh, the advisory board have been paid for the function Uh, that certain youth have been paid to come. And so whether or not that's true, these rumors demonstrate that there is a fear and that there is a potential and possibility that the good functioning of the COP itself will not be allowed to move forward towards an ambitious deal and the scale and the scope that we need. The other key point that we've been saying in our reform letter is that these cops, already in Sharm El Sheikh, 45,000 people descending on Egypt, um, are becoming unruly, are becoming like circuses and trade shows, where, again, fossil fuel interests, but other industry groups are given as much access to the, the negotiators as as are um, as are just the negotiators themselves giving access to each other in order to negotiate these deals. So we have to find a balance between ensuring that actually non-state actors are part of the the discussions and and are allowed to bring forward evidence and proof points of what can happen in practice. and yet, Not enable the actual results to be derailed because of specific interests to keep us from reaching our climate goals. We will be 70,000 people going to Dubai this year. And I've already heard that, for example, the Brazilian COP in 2030 can't host a COP if it's that many people. So there is a real question around what is it that we're doing around these cops? Are we just creating lots of noise and having lots of events and enabling lobbying? Or are we really supposed to focus? So my call would be have smaller meetings, make sure we focus on ambition, find moments where non-state actors and state actors can come together, but not around the negotiations themselves, and ensure fundamentally that Updated science is injected into the conversations because we are still using old science. In fact, many of our proof points are still coming from the Paris Agreement and not from updated science in terms of reaching an agreement. And then, lastly, of course, ensure that we have a presidency that stays neutral and that is truly trying to facilitate a deal. And I'm hopeful that the UAE will prove us all wrong. In terms of our thinking, that actually they're more concerned about continuing an extractive economy and continuing greenhouse gas emissions rather than fundamentally abating and reaching our objectives.
1: Another question that I had for you was whether the format, the current format of COP, was still effective in advancing international climate diplomacy. But I take from your answer that you actually advocate for a complete, if not total, overhaul about, um, of the format of COP.
2: Yes, and, I, and I'm not the only one, by the way. Apart from even our letter and, and our discussions, I know that there are discussions internally in the UN, um, that there are discussions right now in the UNFCCC, that our letter has really had an impact, and that uh, there is an open um, brainstorming around how can we do things differently. But also, people need to realize that it's not just the UN. It is the Conference of the Parties, that's what COP stands for. And so it is also the countries that need to come forward and ask for change. And uh, I think more and more people are going to be putting pressure on countries to do so.
1: Look, the fact that the COP is... uh Create, uh, gathering thousands of people already, and now that we have the UAE uh, chairing the um, the meeting, are these for you as well reasons to transform the format of COP?
0: I, I think I, I would go beyond those as the reasons, and I, I agree with so much of the content in the reform letter, um, Sandrine. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's this is this is not good for the reputation of of COP twenty for the COP process that is being held in in in, in the UAE. I think the question about the real interest in hosting, uh, we can answer ourselves. I think the fact that it's a it's a rhetorical question already at this point we, we questions around the neutrality of the president and so forth. I think it, it, it's 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 a bad decision, but it's important that the, we are we are sharing the presidencies across the world. This is a global issue, and we need collective action absolutely. I think there are two things that I would just want to add. Um, one is we haven't seen. So so great to point out, Sandrine, a good relationship between science and policy. And I would really like to see a stronger nexus here. And I think that it requires maybe more work on all party sides. If we look at, we spoke about the um, um, Dr. Perul's speech with the World Energy Outlook, if we look at what the, the, the way in which it sounds like a kind of a trivial point, the International Energy Agency use graphics on their website you can go on there and you can have a look at some of the most sophisticated and well-developed modeling and forecasting and come away without any professional background in this matter with a sense of understanding of what's happening. That relationship between policymakers deciphering the, the newest updates in, in climate science just isn't there. Um, it's it's important that that is incorporated into the decision-making process that happening at these opportunities where the, the real negotiations are taking place. And the second thing I think is that this is a said it's a global problem. It's a common issue too. So at these events, I think it's critical that people have the opportunity to, to mobilize to protest, to organize and to share their voices at the site in which the the COP is taking place. We saw the challenges last year, Charmel Sheikh, and I have virtually no confidence that there will be opportunities where free uh, um, um, speech will be permitted in Dubai, where people can speak openly about what they think is happening. What they think the real reasons behind the matter are, and what they're demanding that their leaders and that the that the that the party members of the COP uh, itself takes forward, uh, dealing with this issue. So I think that that's a really important question as we think about uh, where the next COP is held and and, and going forward.
2: Hey, can I build on that point? Actually, I think that um, this is a another real key concern that human rights abuses, again, also in el-Sheikh, were a real problem. We are starting to see some authoritarian-like demands that are coming through, both in terms of media clampdowns and also in terms of the way in which speakers are being processed on panels, etc. So I, I do agree with Luke. Again, you know, we we are all trying to be open-minded here, but the signals are not good. And, and that's a real problem. And that is where, however, I do believe that that's where the UN has to clamp down. Um, and where the UN it is still under its auspices, even if it is a, a a very clear negotiation amongst parties, we still have security officers from the UN who are on the premises. And so here we will need to really make sure that there are no human rights abuses and that we are enabling free speech um, as we move into both as we move into COP but also when we're actually there.
1: It's almost paradoxical that the stakes have never been higher. And however, uh, taking from this conversation, the expectations are rather low. However, my final question to both of you, look, i start with you. What does success look like for you uh, for COP28?
0: I think that the... Loss and Damage Fund will be at the center of a successful COP28. I think that um, at the, the World Energy Outlook in Brussels, when when Buddy Barul was highlighting the five keys to a successful COP28, yes, absolutely. I think that renewable capacity and energy efficiency, how we began this discussion, are pivotal methane reduction, also uh, really important and very, very straightforward. I think the question really will be, uh, if we can see political will if we if there's a buoyancy that comes from the success of loss and damage if that influences uh, the 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 mood music in the room I think that there is something to take heart from if that's the case if we see meaningful uh, pathways to implementing some of these uh, objectives rather than vague and nebulous uh, promises um, and I think that if we can complete the the two or so weeks uh, with a continued sense of urgency if the urgency hasn't been diluted through the course of the of the summit, Um, loss and damage, I think, will be will be critical. And if there's a hopefully as a result of the loss and damage success story coming from COP28, that there is a general more positive sense about the collective action issues, which has, you know, been a challenge in terms of international cooperation and so forth. But, but I really do see that the that the importance of detailed transition plans, unlikely to get them, but the focus on the detail, this half of the decade for implementation, that's really important. And secondly, that we're finalizing developments on loss and damage so that we have a robust, responsible, and meaningful uh, sustainable finance architecture for, uh, for ensuring that we can tackle this problem of humanity together um, and that we're redefining well being, as, as, as you mentioned, Sandrine, in the context of these pledges that we're making and that we turn it into action.
1: Sandrine, how do you define success at COP28? So I think my definition of success uh,
2: would actually go beyond all the expectations that we have, because those expectations for me, the methane, the tripling of renewables, the doubling of energy efficiency, the loss and damage, the $100 billion, ensuring that that is fully solved, which it still isn't. Um, those are all kind of lock-ins that we've been carrying with us over the last few COPs, For me, that has to happen. So is that success or is that just, I'm qualifying as business that has to occur, not business as usual, but business that has to occur in order for us to feel like, okay, we're moving forward now. Success would be to bring in something that we didn't expect. And that would be, hopefully, some kind of pledge around fossil fuel phase down and also fossil fuel subsidies elimination. That for me would be huge success, in particular under the auspices of a country in the Middle East, a country that could show real leadership in saying, okay, brothers and sisters from around the world, here we are making this pledge that we're gonna work collectively together to create that just transition that we've been talking about. And then start to see what that looks like. That would be an incredible success. It would prove us all wrong. And and I'm hope I love to be proven wrong. So so that for me would be amazing. Look, Sandrine, thank you
1: very much. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.